so great to be here with you all today. My name is Hannah Kruziger, and I'm here to remind you that you never walk alone, even at your darkest. In today's episode, we have the beloved Dr. Gary Glass of Oxford College of Emory University. Dr. Glass, can you um, introduce yourself? Hi, everybody. I'm, I'm glad to be here and, and excited to be having this conversation. I, I think this is just a wonderful, a wonderful contribution to the universe um, with this podcast you've got. Thank you. All right, so Dr. Glass, could you just tell us a little bit about what led you to Emory in your current career path? Well, it's an ironic uh, path in that I moved to Atlanta in 2002 mm. and from Boston, which I really enjoyed living in Boston. I missed it a lot. And long story short, uh, I spent so much time stuck in traffic that when I left Atlanta in around 2006, I vowed I will never live in this city again. <laughs> and I think that's why I ended up back in Atlanta, because when you say never, the universe tends to make you uh, remember that you're really not in charge of everything. So, <laughs> but I, I, so I, I moved here um, after spending about 10 years uh, as the outreach director of uh, the counseling center at Duke University. Mm -hmm. And I had planned on doing some consulting around college mental health and, and maybe also do some private practice on the side. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I had a, a relationship that brought me to Atlanta. And since I had lived here before, um, I thought it'd be a good place to, to start, uh, start uh, this endeavor with mm -hmm. the professional and personal connections that I had. And I got a... Uh, phone call from the director of Oxford Counseling and Career Services, who had attended a, a talk that I had done. And she invited me to, to, to meet with her. At the time, it was to think of some ideas that she could implement here at Oxford. But then when I arrived for the meeting, she told me that she was actually relocating to New York City. And would I consider coming in uh, because it was happening during the middle of a school year. And so, uh, I just took that as, as, a, as a sign that there was something to gain here. Mm -hmm. um, it being such a small campus, it was really, really appealing to me because I thought this would be a great opportunity to work with a small enough community to explore some ideas I have about creating a therapeutic and supportive campus culture. Mm -hmm. And so uh, by the end of that year, I decided to apply for the position and for whatever reason, they decided to keep me. And that's how I ended up here. Well, I can understand why they did. You're really brilliant and super inspirational for every single, I know, student and faculty member on campus. And we really would not be as healthy of a campus if it weren't for you. Um, <laughs> well, I hope so. <laughs> definitely. Um, so you mentioned that one of your aims was to c cultivate, um, I guess, a more healthy environment regarding mental health. Um, it kind of promotes stability on the college campus. So. With that being said, what's your take on, you know, the current environment in this world right now with COVID and, you know, multiple crises going on? Um, why do you think um, that it's important for college students and faculty to really be able to maybe grieve right now in this time, whether that be, you know, an experience that they were expecting to have for, you know, for sophomores at Oxford, their second semester, or for, you know, the first years, their high school ending their experience there. Why do you think it's important for students and faculty who are grieving um, to find solace on campus? And uh, what do you think needs to be done? 
Well, I think I think it's not simply important uh, to grieve. I think perhaps more right. important is because I think we are all grieving on on some level or another. Mm -hmm. Some yeah. grieving on a number of different levels. I, I think it's important to to acknowledge that we're grieving mm -hmm. and. One of the things that I'm aware of well before the, the, the reality that we're in right now, when I work with uh, students, uh, with clients who have um, been through the experience of, of losing the death of a loved one, mm -hmm. and it had been maybe, maybe quite a while before, maybe even more than a couple of years before, it's often surprising to them when I actually use the word grieving to describe some of the struggles that they're having to suddenly feel a surge of awareness and the awareness comes with a lot of emotion sometimes sadness mm -hmm. uh, sometimes loneliness but there's something about naming it as grieving that invites a different conversation about the journey that they're on because Grieving is inherently a relationship. Mm. Grieving is a particular kind of sadness that has to do with continuing a relationship that seems to have ended. And in a lot of ways, it has ended in the way that it had been experienced before. But until we name something as grieving, we don't go through the steps to discover how to, how to continue with the things that, that we don't have um, in the same way anymore. And so just naming it feels, feels pretty important to me. Yeah. You know, on a more obvious level, it, it seems pretty inconceivable to be living in a world where the news tells us every day how many people have died. Mm -hmm. And even if nobody that we know personally has has died as a result of this pandemic that we're all in, such awareness of, of death almost inevitably, whether we're conscious of it or not, mm -hmm. sort of bumps up against the different losses that we've all suffered. And, and so I think just on a on a mm -hmm. fundamental level, there's a collective grieving that also prompts each of us to 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 feel a bit of a, of a resurgence of the losses that we, we have suffered. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, there's a lot of grieving that doesn't actually involve the, the death of a loved one, although that's certainly a profound loss. Mm -hmm. We all kind of, especially on college campuses, we're almost by definition, we're engaged in an endeavor that has to do with what we plan for our lives. By virtue of being on a college campus, there's this inherent assumption that I'm doing something to prepare, whether it's for this semester or whether it's after college. And we're all in a space where I think it's pretty safe to conclude we weren't planning on this and everything we were planning on, at least for the year 2020, is mm -hmm. so different. <laughs> and, and I think that that's part of, um, that's part of what we're all going through. But you know, Hannah, I've, I've been thinking a lot about this, and, and I think there's another part of grieving that, that warrants some naming of grieving. And, and it's the things that we would never have thought of, hmm. but I think most of us are feeling it every single day. And, hmm. 
And what I'm referring to is just what have we lost when so much of our interactions are on these little rectangles on computer <laughs> screens, thanks to a company called Zoom yeah. or whatever platform we're using. Yeah. And one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is how if we're on Zoom, even if we're in constant contact with our loved ones, if we're on Zoom, then it's inherently scheduled. Hmm, that's true. And I think we're missing the spontaneity that our lives have. Mm -hmm. So much more of our lives and our interactions, whether it's for work or play, whether it's for business or romance, is scheduled. Yeah. And what do we not have with the spontaneity of just running into someone on a sidewalk or in the hallway or just going you know, to, to, to throw your trash out, you know, there's, there's so much that's just not part of the spontaneous living. Mm -hmm. And I, I think we don't really pay attention to how that fatigues us and, and how that might actually impact our, our moods. Mm -hmm. I, I think about, I'm really glad that we're able to continue a, a, an academic experience. Yeah. But what are the things that we don't have when we're looking at class on a screen when normally we would be sitting in a row of chairs, perhaps looking out the window, perhaps just happen to be noticing what people are wearing, just the, 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 the sounds of the lawnmowers outside of the classroom. <laughs> I mean, all of the things, all of the normal distractions that probably play a role in making us think about different things, how that's impacting our creativity, how that's impacting the kinds of things we think about, mm -hmm. who we see on the, on the sidewalks uh, while we're looking out the window in class and paying attention to the professor. Yeah. You know, what are the ways that we're, we're not really getting to be our physical selves as, as much? And how much of this is, is not just the impact on our eyes, but in what ways are we grieving these never named experiences that make up going to class, going to the library, going to the, you know, the, the dining halls on, on, on campus. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think so much of that is tied to just, I think losing, you know, nuances that make us human and nuances that kind of make us the quintessential college student or professor. Yeah or whoever, which is difficult to lose because K through 12, we're brought up and taught, you know, that the goal for most, mostly everyone is college. And so you always have this image of, you know, what media has made college look like, what maybe your family members or um, siblings have made college look like for you. And then to go to college and especially for the first years to not have that expect to not have that expectation met and if with anything to have it completely kind of shattered and kind of feel like you're living in this post-apocalyptic post <laughs> society and college situation is a really difficult thing to just acknowledge and walk through um and yeah i i think to your point about how this year has just kind of been a multiplicity of um I guess crises or different events that would 
I think lead to a lot of trauma, whether or not we realize it or not, um, is very interesting. Um, and something to really consider, I think, and to check in with ourselves and ask ourselves, like, how are we really doing? <laughs> and not be afraid of that answer, because I think that's also different. And that can be cultural as well, just not wanting to ask oneself, like, how am I really doing? And wanting to sit with that and unpack that. And also, it's not convenient for our modern, you know, hustle and bustle society. We're still finding a way to be uber productive, even within a pandemic. Um, so I think that with that being said, um, you brought up a really great analogy to me last year. I can disclose this. I know you can't, um, but I was a patient, I guess, or I, would I be a patient or a client or I guess what's the right word? A student, a student having a conversation. Yes. <laughs> I was a student having a conversation with you about losing my dad my senior year um, in my first year of, of, at Oxford, my first year of college. And um, I was having a really hard time managing this really profound hurt <laughs> that I was feeling while also keeping up and maintaining my academics. So I wanted to ask, um, could you kind of explain the analogy, the child-parent analogy um, that this episode is ultimately, you know, named after um, parenting our emotions. And could you explain that a bit more? Well, I, I think uh, a lot of what you're referring to does does have particular um, relevance this year because I think a lot of things have just been amplified this year. Mm -hmm. But your reference to productivity, I think, is is important because as a society, and I think college campuses. Uh, and particularly very highly competitive, highly selective institutions place such high premium on productivity. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the unfortunate consequences of that is how much emotions are, are relegated to at best inconveniences mm -hmm. um, and, and at worst problems that, that folks have to to, to deal with. And, you know, I, I still, I still feel some sadness at how many times I'll be meeting with a student and they're, they're, they're meeting with me because they're seeking counseling services by, by definition, almost they're, they're struggling to some extent and they'll start to cry. Uh, and, and then they'll apologize. They say, I'm sorry for getting emotional. And what kind of a world are we in where people are apologizing to therapists for having emotions? <laughs> wow, yeah, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. And for me, emotions are very much like children. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is uh, they, they represent something that is part of being alive in this world. Mm -hmm. uh, but I noticed that as a society, it's as if we have joy and pride and confidence and we love those children and we like having them around. But then when it comes to sad or, or scared or angry, we 
we tell those are bad children. We mm. wish they were never born. We want them in the basement and mm. we apologize when they come out. Mm. And when I think about that, from a parenting perspective, we would never think of dividing our children into good children and bad children and saying to some, we don't want you to be heard. Mm-hmm. We would know that they're all different, but they all have something really important to contribute to this world. Mm-hmm. And naturally, there are times when if I have five or six children and they're playing around the house and I find out that there's something dangerous happening in the neighborhood, I'm going to want them to go to their rooms and lock the door or go to the basement and don't come out until until I let them know that it's safe. So there are times where I think we really need to relate to our emotions in a way where it's not a good idea to have them out in the open. Or, Or if I have a really important meeting with my boss who's coming over to the house and it doesn't need to be interrupted to tell all of the children to go to their rooms and occupy themselves. But that's not the same as saying, I don't want them. That's saying, I need you to to not be here right now, but I will be with you shortly. I'll come down and get you as soon as it's okay. So that there's a constant trust between me and the emotions that I feel and so in that way, we sort of raise our emotions to know how to operate in the world. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to do that if we relate to some of them as if they're inherently bad or problematic. And so I always think of emotions as the very first children that all of us raise, whether we end up having physical children as, as parents later in life or not. Mm. That's so good. <laughs> I love that so much. And I know that. Um, a lot of people will glean a lot from that. And as I have, like, throughout the past year, um, it's really helped me to navigate school and how I feel in a really healthy way, in a way that I don't end up feeling worse later on because I haven't stewarded my emo- my emotions correctly. Um, I think that's really important, too, to not suppress, but to to address, uh, obviously, but in in a way that's also conducive to your season of life. I really love that. Um, So what would you say are some of your practical tips? I guess the analogy in itself is is a practical, you know, practice or a tip, but what are your tips or practices to use when balancing this heavy, you know, workload and grief at the same time? Yeah. Well, going back to the emotions, Think of emotions as uh, serving two functions. One, I think emotions connect human beings with other human beings, or 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 even more, living things to other living things. And if you if you don't believe me, see what happens when you have uh, a puppy. And if you like puppies, what happens? There's a connection that happens, and you start to feel that the emotions tell you something and so and the second is emotions tell us what matters or what is important at this particular moment Mm -hmm. and so rather than thinking of of your emotions as 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 problems or intrusions 
think of them as messengers. And so listen to what your emotions are trying to tell you about what matters. So for example, if, and one of the emotions that I think is, is relatively prominent these days is, is anger. Sometimes it shows up as irritability. But when we feel any form of anger, whether it's rage or whether it's annoyance, it's telling us that there's something that either needs our protection, either from some kind of physical harm or some kind of an emotional harm. But anger is our protector emotion. And so when we're feeling angry, ask what part of us is needing protection? And my guess is that the part of us that's needing protection is probably because anger is always what I call the, 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 the second layer emotion. There's usually a more vulnerable emotion like sadness. And so sadness is telling us that there's a disconnection or a loss of some sort and that we need to pay attention to that. Mm -hmm. Whether it means right now we need to ask the sadness to wait for a moment because I have an exam in 10 minutes <laughs> or whether it's, you know what, I, I'm going to listen to what I'm sad about because it's probably asking me to reconnect with something that has been neglected in my life. Whether that's a loved one who has died, or whether that's an instrument that I used to love to play, and I haven't heard the music of that instrument in nine or 10 months. What are the emotions trying to tell us when, when we're feeling afraid? What is it that we are afraid will happen? And how then can we activate our problem solving skills to either prepare ourselves for that happening or to realize that it's more of a fear than a prediction. Mm. So my tip is to listen to what is your emotion trying to tell you about what matters to you in this moment. Mm. And then as a good parent, you can figure out what to do in response to that very important message that your emotions are sending. Mm. I love that. I think of something that I took away from what you just said and what I think I'm hearing, feel free to correct me. Um, is that also we need to rewire and to rethink the way that we are interpreting our emotions and um, whether or not we're coding them as problems and issues and annoyances or as messengers and as things that actually help us to become more in tune with ourselves and ultimately lead us to, I think, a healthier version of ourselves and a more in tune version of ourselves. Is that... Um, Correct, was that kind of what? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And, and think about it in terms of any relationship. If you, if you have gone to somebody repeatedly to tell them something and they keep telling you, oh no, you're not even supposed to be here. I don't wanna hear anything from you. It's gonna mm -hmm. be harder for you to have the courage to go up and tell them again. And so for, for any folks who have, who have been taught, which I think our society often teaches us, to neglect or reject our emotions, it may require that you reestablish a relationship with them. And that might take a while to, to regain trust with yourself. I mean, it sounds kind of goofy to think about, you know, regaining trust with yourself, but I promise you a lot of folks who are struggling these days, it's because they don't even realize that they don't trust themselves mm. to handle the challenges in their lives and they prefer to get as much control as possible. And I, I often say to folks, 
the opposite of control is trust. Mm. And that doesn't mean that we don't try to have influence in our lives, but it does mean that it's important to ask ourselves, do I really trust myself to feel what I feel, to, to, to be who I am and, and, and still belong in this world? Mm. Man, <laughs> that's so good. That's really good. Um, I, yeah, I struggle a lot with trusting myself and just trusting that, um, that I can really, I guess, confront my emotions on certain days. I think especially because of COVID and because this year has been so horrible, (laughs) um, for so many people that the last thing that we want to do is really sit with our emotions and, and really submit that control because that control is kind of what we feel like we we have at this point especially because of how this year has gone if anything the year has proven that we don't have any control like at all so when that with that being said we're trying to compensate for the loss of control with just more control but when we do that we lose sight of ourselves and the trust and um in our in our strength that has come out of this year as well like every single day we're stronger than the last and i think that 2020 has given us a lot of calluses and has proven that we will that we will you know rise up and be strong the next day um but we seldom genuinely believe that about ourselves Um, i I can't agree more and i i in fact i often hear people say i don't want to feel my emotions because then they're gonna completely take over. If I start crying, I'm never gonna stop. There's this fear. Mm. But what I notice is that I never hear people say, oh, well, I'm not gonna laugh because then I'm afraid I'm never gonna stop laughing. (laughs) Mm. And I do believe sometimes that we think of emotional opposites like joy and sadness are opposites when I wonder, in fact, if they are not simply two sides of one phenomenon. Oh, yeah. But I, I do think, though, that we, we, we are often afraid of the power of our emotions. Mm. And what I invite folks to consider is, if that's true, are you, are you at the end of the day uh, really trying to mute the power of love? Mm. Wow. Could you go a little and we bit? Don't, mm-hmm. We don't hurt, we don't fear, we don't care if on some level we don't love or value or respect, which I guess kind of cir- circles us back around to, to grieving. Yeah. No, grieving is so complicated. It's almost so it's just part of living because mm. When we think of grieving beyond simply the the, the death of a person or the death of of a living thing, um, I I think, and right now we are all struggling. You know, I also think about other other ways in which uh, we're all going through a lot of powerful emotions, just about what it means to be in in this country right now. And, you know, we've had a pandemic of of a novel coronavirus but this has also been a year where many people are only awakening to some of the realities of racism and social injustice. Mm-hmm. So for those, there's a grieving of what they believed this country was about. Mm-hmm. 
others are not awakening to this. This is yet just another reminder of how long they have been grieving for justice, how long they have been suffering the loss of people's lives because of some of the ugly truths of, of what we've all been navigating. And so to me, one of the things to keep in mind is that grieving does not require that we're conscious of it happening. Mm. But we can connect with each other. We can engage in conversation with each other. We can share our, our thoughts and our emotions with each other as a way of, of creating sort of a solidarity around healing and, and growing through our, our many, many experiences of grieving. Yeah, I love that. I, I sound like a broken record, I really do. Sorry, there's this lawnmower that just <laughs> came to my front yard, but no, I really do think that's so important. And yeah, grief isn't really something that necessarily makes itself known. It's whether or not you acknowledge it, I think. Yeah. And depending on how you acknowledge it is how you will walk through it. And I don't want to say how long you will walk through it because I think that grief is ongoing. And at some point, one part of something that you're grieving becomes a little less apparent, but then something that you're grieving that maybe is fresh, you know, is this whole another process. Yes. Um, but something I really love that you mentioned was that joy and sadness are not necessarily mutually exclusive. They're, I think that they're one and the same. I think that joy is different from happiness because people would often say that, okay, well, happiness and sadness are antonyms and they are, but I think that joy is this, it's not quite optimism, but it's, it's non-circumstantial. I think the joy is something that can come even in the midst of a difficult season. Mm -hmm. And it's different than happiness because happiness is fleeting. Mm -hmm. I think whenever I hear the goal, like my goal is to be happy. I'm like, no, my goal is to be joyful because joyful will be um, long lasting. It will breed longevity. Whereas happiness, I'll feel good for a couple, for maybe a couple days, couple minutes, but then I'll just go back to feeling horrible. That why would I want to, you know, put myself through that process. Whereas joy, I think is so special and you can have joy in admitting where you are at and how you feel and st still holding on to hope. I think that that's what joy is. And there's this kind of, I don't want to use the word joy again, but I guess this, this optimism that comes out of hope that we all desperately need. Yeah. But I also think that that, you know, poses the question. Yeah. Um, what are we putting our hope in? Yeah. Because if we're also doing the same thing that we did with happiness, if we're putting our, our hope in things that are going to be fleeting, like the expectations of next semester being on campus or the expectations of having your class sizes grow or the expectation of this thing that you really want. Of, and if those things don't happen, which this year has shown us we don't have control over, then where are we going to be left and where will hope really be? So we have to find those things that really breed longevity. So joy and hope in things that are long lasting yeah. versus yeah. happiness and 
you know, skin, I guess, surface hope that in things that are just going to leave you um, empty handed. And I think also we often turn to those surface level things because we can't deal with what's on the inside. And I think that joy and hope in the long lasting way helps us to look and have time with ourselves, show ourselves grace to look at the inside while holding on to that sense of hope and optimism um, in day-to-day life. What, what I love about what you're saying, Hannah, and it, and it kind of links to something you said at the very beginning of this conversation, which was your reference nuance. Mm. And, you know, I, although I, I invite folks to, to come up with their own definitions of, of each, and, and maybe even some folks would define joy and happiness uh, in, in the inverse of how you defined it, but what's so important is that we take the time to ask ourselves how we do define the vocabulary that we have around emotion. Mm-hmm. And I love how you're taking the time to ask what's the difference between joy and happiness. And, mm-hmm. and when you think about when you said surface things, the first thing that came to mind is an, an additional word, which is pleasure. Mm-hmm. And how pleasure is, as I understand it, as I define pleasure, something that is as an immediate sensation regarding what is happening in the moment. And I really think that regardless of how each of us define particular words, it's, it's helpful to ask ourselves what our definitions are so that we think yeah. about how that informs the way we walk through these experiences. Mm-hmm. You brought up hope and to me, Hope is a really complex emotion because it inherently has joy as a possibility mm-hmm. with an acknowledgement that what is hoped for doesn't yet actually happen or isn't actually true yet. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I always say it takes a certain amount of courage yeah. to have hope. Yes. Because if you're hoping for it, you're also recognizing that you do not yet have it. Yeah. And that can be very scary for folks. Mm-hmm. It's terrifying. I think too, I'll, I'll say it again, this year has just been so destructive in so many ways. And I think in a lot of ways, we, we feel wounded. We feel like not only can we not trust ourselves, but we can't trust that things will work out. And we can't trust that we can have hope because at the same time, if we want to have hope and we want to step out in courage and those things don't happen, we'll be, we'll feel devastated. And I think that's another, um, I guess, side to it that, you know, we, that is there that we're not maybe addressing, but I think that courage and hope are things that we should still always hold on to I mean truthfully we can't really afford not to and I think that to a certain degree we still do mm-hmm. um, yeah what are your thoughts on that I, I I agree and and I think it is very difficult to hold on to hope when you are alone yeah because I think hope is a relationship between your present and your future but because it is a relationship I think It is very easy to, and people use the phrase, lose hope. Mm. And to me, 
makes it sound like my keys. Where did I put my keys? Mm -hmm. I don't think it's so much that we lose hope as much as we reject it. Mm. Wow. <laughs> and we may reject it because it is painful when what we hoped for does not happen. And I think that's as true in any individual's lives. And I think, especially when we think about uh, what we have been dealing with as a nation, intergenerational transmission of hope and intergenerational transmission of hopelessness. Mm -hmm. these, are, these are ways that we have so much to gain by remaining in conversation with each other, because I think in conversation, whether it's with one other person or whether it's with the community, allows us to find different paths to reclaim hope, to reinvite hope. Especially if the disappointment comes, we go through disappointment with another. So we're 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 we've got strength and solidarity. Yeah. Amen. I completely agree, and I think that's why. Um, Letters to Dad is here, the Letters to Dad Foundation. That's why um, it exists, and that's why we have this podcast, because um, we want to cultivate that community that does breed hope, and we want to cultivate that solidarity for people that, um, like myself, have just felt really alone in this season of quarantine. But also, I would say not like myself, because I've also understood that I'm, I never walk alone, even when I feel alone. And that's why Letters to Dad is here. There's always someone that feels and understands above all else what you are walking through because they're doing, they're walking through the same thing or they have walked through it. Um, so I think that communities like this are so great in the fact that they can really remind people that they never walk alone, even at their darkest point, which is what I referenced at the beginning of every podcast is that, you know, I'm here to remind you that you never walk alone, even at your darkest. And I think if we just had those daily reminders and ultimately it just comes down to how we get up every single day and what we tell ourselves and what we allow in and what we name and claim kind of these themes that we've touched on today um, in this episode of, you know, renaming our emotions, reinterpreting them, renaming our environments, reinterpreting those. I think that's really important. Um, and that hope and that courage is also will and does breed resilience. And every single day, if we're just able to get up and remind ourselves of these things and work at it, even if we don't feel like working um, at renaming what we know and reclaiming what we know, I think that um, we'd you know, be healthy, healthier more joyful. I don't want to say happier people on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. yeah. I, I just can't agree more. Mm -hmm. So with that being said, Dr. Glass, what are some resources that you suggest students and faculty check out either affiliated with the university, non-affiliated? Um, what are your contributions? Well, the, the first resource that I want to name is uh, the people you already have in your life. Mm -hmm. And I can just hear all of the voices in the, in the space we're in saying, but I don't want to burden people. 
But what I want to say about that is what feels like a burden on one side of a relationship is the opportunity to be kind and loving and giving, which feels really good. So please don't deprive mm -hmm. the people in your life of that wonderful experience of being there for someone because it feels good. Yeah. Whether that's friends, whether that's family, whether that's a professor or whether that's a staff member or whether that's a podcast. Mm. Yeah. I so believe in that, that I, I guess I made a living out of <laughs> how good it feels to be able to, to, to be a resource for, for folks. Mm -hmm. And so use the resources on, on campus, yeah. the, the helpful resources, if it's academic, you know, find mm -hmm. the academic support centers on your campus, whether it's remote or in person. You know, obviously I, I work at Oxford College and, and so the advising support center, whether that's spiritual, we have the, the, the chaplain's office and, and Lynn Pace is an amazing human being. And then of mm -hmm. course, our office, counseling and career services, but there's for anybody who might be listening that's on a different campus, I'm sure your campus has some counterpart of, of these. Mm -hmm. There's uh, resources, you know, particularly for our students here at Oxford College and Emory, you know, we have taken a, a steps to make sure that students who are not on campus that need to, to use uh, professional counseling resources, uh, we've identified a way to give that to you. And so just visit the CAPS website or our, our website and, and find that there's something called Emory Student Telehealth that allows you to connect with resources in whatever state you're in. Yeah. And that's that's something that's being provided through Emory. And and don't forget you are also a resource. Mm -hmm. I love what you you said about you're never really alone, Hannah, because there's a difference between being all by myself and being with myself. Mm. And all of you have yeah. many dimensions to yourself. And one of those is is a really good resource, but really echoing your statement. We do so much more for this world when we do it in connection with others. Mm -hmm. And so use the resources that are available to you. And, and don't forget, there will be a time that you will be a resource for somebody as well. Yeah. For sure. I love that. And also, I would like to plug as well um, the ltdfoundation.org. That is our official URL for the Letters to Dad Foundation. Um, on there, under the Resources for You tab, if you click on the Campus Resources tab, you can see all of the um, Emory University-wide resources, whether that be Oxford or Atlanta or general um, resources. And I will definitely also go on and add the Emory Student Telehealth on there as well. And I think by extension, this podcast is somewhat a version of that um, because, you know, we basically all just got a therapy session from you, Dr. Glass. <laughs> um, so this is also a great resource if you are out of state and you can't receive um, direct, I guess, help counseling from, schedules. yeah, counseling schedule. Yeah. So this will be a great resource. Yeah. Oh. And that resource also has for students who are interested in scheduled counseling appointments, it also has a feature called Talk Now that, you know, of course, you need to use your your Emory student ID for folks who are listening from the Emory campus. But uh, that's such something where you, I just need someone to talk to. Yeah. 
yeah. uh, you know, and, and that's, uh, that, that's available 24 seven. And so just get on, get on the, the, the websites, um, either through TAPS or, or us, and then you'll, you'll find the link. And of course on, on, on Hannah's website as well. So she'll, she'll include that. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Glass, for being here today and for just bringing us such good word today and just being um, so phenomenal. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. I, I, I've just so enjoyed this opportunity to, to, to have this conversation with you. And, and I'm so, so, I, I'm beyond words of, of how much I appreciate this project of yours because I really think that it's just a wonderful example of, of what it means to, to create a, a therapeutic and a supportive community. Oh, thank you. I really, once again, it's such a privilege to have you here and it all started with you. So thank you. Okay. All right. Thank you guys, everyone for tuning in. This has been such a phenomenal episode with Dr. Gary Glass and we'll check you out on the next one. Bye.